Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. There's been a lot of lamentation of late about how little money the three trillion of assets commanded by British pension schemes put into domestic equities or infrastructure schemes. Some see it as a reason why the London Stock Exchange has become a bit of a backwater in recent years, especially for such things as exciting new tech companies. But now the Sunak government has acted. In a speech on Monday, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, proposed a series of reforms that he said would channel money from pension funds into UK assets. They included an agreement with the UK's defined contribution schemes, that's where you just get out what you put in, plus the investment return, to put 5% of their assets into unlisted equities over time. He also announced consultation on the local government pension scheme, a big defined benefit scheme, which means you get a proportion of your final salary, to put 10% of its assets into private equity, and also plans to introduce a new super fund, to consolidate the UK's 5,000 defined benefit schemes into larger entities. Hunt talks about all this freeing up at least £75 for high-tech investment and also, he suggests, will help to improve outcomes for pensioners. But is he right? We're joined by John Ralph, consultant and pensions expert, to talk about these things. So, John, welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. First of all, do you think this package will actually change anything at all? Well, I spent yesterday downloading all the dozen documents that the government produced, and it really is a laundry list. It's anything that has the word pensions in, they've done a paper on. Mm. The most important of the dozen or so papers, as you've mentioned, is this idea that defined contribution pensions, where there is no guarantee, the individual puts a percentage of their salary away each month, and that's topped up by the employer, that a proportion of that 5% should be included, vested in what's rather mysteriously called productive assets. And productive assets, for these purposes, mainly means private equity. You've been talking about the lack of investment in public UK equities. What the government are talking about is putting that into private equity, Mm -hmm. not necessarily private equity, equity in the UK, of course, and also in infrastructure. So I'm not convinced that the government's intention is to revive the stock market. There's been lots, lots of moaning. There have been lots, lots of people saying that UK pension schemes have somehow let the UK economy down. But I think that the main part of it is to invest in so-called productive assets. Having worked my way through those uh, dozen or so suggestions, there are some things that are highly technical and I, I don't have any views on them. There are some that might work and there are some that definitely won't work. Is there a definition of a productive asset in this uh, glorious mishmash of of papers? There isn't. I think productive assets should be in inverted commas, and it's basically anything that the government thinks is a jolly good idea. (laughs) Ominous, I must say. If they think it's a good idea, it almost certainly is going to lose money. You you might say that, deal. I couldn't possibly comment. Do you think that there is any sense in the government setting objectives and rules for pension funds or encouraging them down certain paths of investment at all. 
do you think that they should simply stow it and allow the pension schemes to do their best to fulfill the large amount of legislation which surrounds their activity? Yeah, I mean, I'd be very, very wary about the government mandating asset allocation. And in all fairness, this isn't what they're doing. Even so-called nudges, certainly a bit more than nudges, you know, kicking the backside is not something that the government should be trying to do. It's not only something that the government shouldn't be trying to do. It's actually probably legally impossible to do, given the fiduciary duties that that trustees have. So speaking as an amateur, if you like, nothing to do with pensions, I think the government should be creating an underlying economic framework which makes the UK an attractive place to invest. And that might be UK pension schemes or it might be overseas pension schemes, overseas investors, rather than implicitly twisting people's arms. So broadly speaking, I think the government should be staying well out of it. Uh, Well, I agree entirely with that. Um, (laughs) Do you think the 5% will actually make any difference in practice? Because it's extraordinary how the labels on some of these investments can be changed to fit the current fashion. Uh, And quite a lot of the investments that these large investors have will already fit that 5% target. So they can carry on doing exactly what they currently do. I think that is absolutely right. And there is no definition of what, what exactly is it that people are being encouraged to invest in. The local government pension scheme, and that's for the, for the UK as a whole, that's about £500 billion. That includes Scotland, which isn't included in this consultation. They already have something like 5% invested in private equities. There's no breakdown given as to how much of that is in the UK and how much of that is overseas. So for all we know, the 5% private equity is all in the US, which doesn't do the UK a a fat lot of good. Mm. What they are being encouraged to do is to go from 5% to 10%. And that's quite a lot of money. And as a general thing, I just don't believe that the UK is short of money, short of good ideas, it's not short of money. Mm. I think there's a shortage of the shortage of underlying good investments. So the idea that private equity has been a magic formula and is going to be a magic formula on a much, much bigger scale, I, I, I just don't believe. I think I would agree entirely with that. And most proper an- analyses of private equity over the last couple of decades do bear out your contention that it's mostly gearing and very low interest rates. And as we can see at the moment playing out with the uh, Great Thames Water saga, which of course if Mm. a bunch of pension fund managers had been encouraged to put their cash into that, no doubt they would be squeaking very loudly (laughs) to the government for Mm. a bailout now on the grounds that they wouldn't have done it if they hadn't been told they had to. (laughs) You will know, you will know. Absolutely. The second and third largest shareholders in Thames Water are USS and British Telecom Pension Scheme. Government guarantee for the latter one. Do you think, John, that there's anything in the idea that there should be some sort of incentive to invest in the UK rather than overseas? Perhaps some reduced tax breaks for foreign holdings rather than the complete tax breaks for UK holdings. Do you think there's anything in that or it's just another distortion? 
I mean, you've got to be very careful about what is a carrot and what is a stick and what are the unintended consequences. I noticed, Neil, you phrased that very carefully. And I think what you were suggesting was that there should be a bit of a stick. So in other words, if you choose to invest overseas, you get a lower tax break rather than saying if you choose to invest in the UK, you get a higher tax break. The government clearly provides all sorts of incentives to people to invest in all sorts of different ways. My personal view is that those those tax incentives to invest should not be given to investors like you or me who are just buying shares. They should be given to people who are actually actually putting boots on the ground and money into the economy. So I think my answer to your question is, of course, the government should be encouraging investment, but it should be encouraging direct investment. Mm. This super deduction that's been introduced in the last couple of years that runs for the next three years, it should be given directly to companies who are expanding their own businesses, not to investors. What are they doing? All they're doing is buying shares in, in companies. OK, so that's against giving a higher incentive to people to put money into the UK. But what about the old stick? That doesn't affect direct investment. It says to them, look, if you want to invest overseas, you may get a lower tax break than you would do if you were investing a little bit more in the UK. But that is that's incredibly parochial and sort of the little Englander. And it almost takes you back. Neil and I are about the same age, but we we will both remember exchange controls. And I can't Ah, remember the dollar premium, the year when. (laughs) 1979, uh, 1979. Well, I can tell you, if there had still been exchange controls, for good or ill, we wouldn't have had Big Bang and we wouldn't have had London being a major financial centre for the last 40 years, which it has been. But can I ask, can I turn away from this parochial discussion to, to broaden it out to this question, which people do come back to again and again, which is the question of of whether we should be worried about the fact that pension schemes in the UK have a relatively low exposure to equities and whether it would be better if it was higher. Now, the number that's often chucked about is that UK pension funds only invest 27% of their assets in equities. That's obviously global and UK. We're not just talking about UK here. Versus closer to to more than 40 in global schemes. Is that something we should be worried about? Well, I guess the first thing I would say, Jonathan, is make a distinction between defined benefit Mm -hmm. pensions and defined contribution pensions. Defined benefit pensions are a promise, a promise made by the company to provide its former employees with a pension from a certain date until they die and their spouses increased in line with inflation. That's very, very onerous. Back in the day, 40 years ago, uh, even 20 years ago, defined benefit pension schemes for good or ill held the majority of their assets in equities and in UK equities. And it tended to be given to a Schroders or a Philips and Drew or a Gartmore. And they basically just got, get on with, got on with it. Now, what we've had since is an absolutely fundamental change in the way defined benefit pension schemes operate, which is they're close to new members starting 20 years ago, and they're closing to existing members. So if you step back, if you look at the private sector, there are, I think I came up with half a dozen companies that you've ever heard of that are still open to existing members. And one, I could only find one that's still open to new members. Crowder International. Well done, guys. Really? Crowder International. Okay. Without being terribly highfalutin, once you have a situation where the pension scheme is closed and you can say, look, this person is going to, you know, aged 40, is now he's going to live on average to 89. You can be very precise about the pension payments that you're going to be make, making. 
yes, you, you, you don't hold equities. You hold something that matches those pension promises as precisely as you can. And you also then hope that you can get rid of the pension promises altogether and that they'll be passed on to a, an insurance company, to you know, legal in general or pension insurance corporation or whoever it might be. So you, the company, you, the directors of the company, can get on with your core business. So the big thing that's happened in the last 20 years is pension schemes have closed. Yeah. Uh, and in the Netherlands, of course... Where they haven't closed. They haven't all, closed. Exactly. All pension schemes are open. Not only are they open, they're compulsory. Yeah. You then step back and say, OK, the percentage of equities, that pension scheme that I, I'm making the decisions for, percentage of equities has shrunk dramatically. What is the percentage of the world's stock market represented by the UK? 4%, 5%. The US is 60 or 70%. So if you if you work through the numbers, what percentage of equities should defined many pension schemes be holding? What percentage should they be holding in the UK? You very quickly see that you end up with what looks like an astonishingly small number. But it's clear that where you have a defined benefit scheme, you're right. A that when they close, they're likely to invest more heavily in fixed income than they are in equities. They can see, you know, the maturity of the people they have to pay out till the scheme finally disappears altogether. So it's the fact of closure that is reducing the participation in the equity market. And and that is, as you've also pointed out, a function of the UK, which has seen lots of closures of pension schemes. So what seems to me to be the driver of that is that unlike Holland, we had a very scattered set of schemes, which were subscale. And when conditions became tougher for them rather than continuing to operate as in the Netherlands they just all close willy-nilly and we're now in a kind of an avalanche of closures. Well we haven't had an avalanche of closures companies have been closing their pension schemes gradually new members 20 years ago existing members starting 10 years ago why have they done that well they've done that because the cost of providing these guarantees has become spectacularly expensive and that's a function of real interest rates falling pretty much since 1997. So from the point of view of the finance director, you're ending up saying it's just not worth a candle. I'd rather increase the you know, my, my spend on DC pensions. So it isn't anything to do with scale. It's to do with how much does it cost to provide a, a pension promise or what typically a 160th pension promise being paid from the age of 65 to the age of 89 and a half or whatever, inflation link. That's a very, very onerous and very expensive and very expensive promise. Yeah. But do you think we should be consolidating? 5,000 pension schemes is too many. The costs and skills and their ability to invest in all sorts of areas is undermined. They should be pushed together. What's wrong with that? There are 5,000 pension schemes. It's absolutely extraordinary. And I'm the chairman of a tiny pension scheme. And I had never thought about pension schemes of that size until I became chairman of this pension scheme. And the problem is they each have an actuarial consultant. They each have a chairman of trustees, you know, probably paid, possibly not paid. They have an accountant, they have an actuarial evaluation. It's very difficult to run a small scheme because the fixed costs are the same whether you're talking about very small or, or, or a lot larger. So, John, are you trying to get your scheme emerged with a, another one? If only it was as easy as that. If only it's easy as that. 
at the point at which the scheme that I'm involved with is sufficiently well-funded because the company's putting in money, which it is putting in, to be able to do a buyout, that's the beginning and the end of it. And pension buyouts are cheaper today than they were a year ago. And the pension buyout market is booming. And the people who are doing it are completely rushed off their feet. But how long is that? How long is it going to take for them to be funded to buy out? I don't know. Until that point, it's impossible to consolidate because you have 5,000 different employers on the hook at the moment. If you put them together, they're not going to want to be on the hook. They're not going to want to be responsible for somebody else. Hmm. Until you can break that link, it's not possible, not possible to consolidate. Now, the so-called super funds, and that's been around a very long time. In a way, I think their day has come and passed because they were supposed to be able to provide buyout light, if I can, if I can use that phrase, on a much cheaper basis than than an than insurance company. But what we've seen over the last year, again, I'm repeating myself is buyout costs have come down. Why would you want to go to a super fund when in a lot of cases you can go straight to an insurance company? You don't have to have a debate or you know falling out with the trustees who are saying, well, hang on a minute. At the moment, we have you, the company, on the hook, and we know you, the company. What you're telling us that who, who is on the hook? Well, it's this funny company that's owned by private equity, for example, who on earth are they? We'd rather go to legal and general. <laughs> well, you definitely would if you can afford it. And now it, it is more affordable. Every, you know, everybody knows legal and general and they're properly regulated. So I think the super fund consolidation, I don't want to say it's dead in the water, but we haven't had any deals. There is one entity which has received authorization or approval or whatever you call it from the pension regulator. And that's it. You know, I think when the history comes to be written, super funds are going to be a footnote. More generally, is there anything in the proposals that you think actually make things better rather than worse? Yes. Oh, good. And that is to do with local government pension scheme. Local government pension scheme is legally one scheme, but for historic reasons, it's split into almost 100 funds in England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland. They do hold a lot of equities. They have something like 60 or 70 percent in equities. And I did some work on this recently, and I was genuinely surprised that if you look at the, their asset allocation, they've got very little of their standard equities, if you like, invested in the UK. Staffordshire Pension Fund, for example, has more money invested in Silicon Valley than it does in Stoke-on-Trent. That doesn't come as such a huge surprise uh, to no, me. No, exactly. And... and, and <laughs> Here is my favourite stat at the moment. NEST, which is the government default scheme for those who are forced to join schemes on employment, they have £29 billion under management now. They have three main schemes and there is not a single UK equity in any of the top 10 holdings in any of those schemes. As far as the local government pension scheme is concerned, however it happens, and in a way I don't care, how it happens, those pension schemes, and they're large individually, should be bringing a small amount of money, it doesn't need to be the whole lot, a small amount of money back from the US into the UK, they should be investing locally, and at the margin, that will make a difference to what's happening in in local economies, and it will help the levelling up. Would you force them to do it? I don't think I would force them to do it. I think I would use whatever moral suasion eyes the government can. And the trouble with the the relationship between local government and central government, and it's been this, you know, going back to Chamberlain in in the mid-19th century, 
local government does not like doing as a matter of principle what central government tells it to. Mm. So it's got to be a much more softer, softer approach. John, we talked a lot about the the paper and the reforms the government has suggested, and you're a little bit sceptical about some of them. Are there reforms that you think we should be focusing on that are not in the government paper? I definitely think there are. And again, I hope these aren't too highfalutin, but the first thing is to change the tax regime for individual saving. At the moment, if you are a 40% taxpayer, end-to-end, you get a much, 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 much higher tax break than the 20% taxpayers. I would say twice as much, yes. No, it's much, much more than twice as much. And it's much more than twice as much because the real juice, the real benefit is in the tax-free amount that you get. Oh, I see what you mean. That's the real incentive. It's a geared thing. People have been talking about a flat rate tax top-up set to be neutral for the Treasury at, say, 30%. And what that means is that if you are a 20% taxpayer, you get a bit more, and that gives you an incentive as a, as a lower, lower earner to save a bit more, helps to close the gap, and it helps to close the gap between you know, full-time employees and part-time employees and the gender pension gap and all, all that, which is very important. The other side of the coin, of course, is if you're a 40% taxpayer, you get less tax relief. So it seems to me that it's efficient and fair. So I think that's important. Politically, it's not very attractive. The second thing I would want to do is look at public sector pensions. Public sector pensions are unfunded, with the exception of local government, but the big ones, you know, the teachers, uh, health, and, teachers, yeah. civil service, there aren't any assets to invest. But the truth is, they're as expensive, they're actually even more expensive than the old private sector pension schemes, defined benefit pension schemes used to be, because they're much more generous. And the generosity really is eye-watering. And for example, just to give you a a, for example, in the private sector, annual increases are capped at 5% as a maximum, and in some cases a bit less. So over the last year or so, when we've had double-digit inflation, those private sector members have lost out. They've lost out forever. So in other words, their pension increase has been capped at 5%. So they've lost 5% forever and ever and ever. And as an aside, that's one of the reasons why pension schemes are well-funded, because they've had that, that bonanza. If you are in the public sector, if you're a civil servant making decisions, if you're an MP, there is absolutely no cap whatsoever. Civil servants and MPs, ministers, don't have any inflation skin in the game. They don't care. So I would want to look at public sector pension schemes. There are various things that you can do, but I think you need to make them less generous. And in exchange for making them less generous, but still very generous, you can use that money saved to increase people's take home pay. So there's no point having the most generous pension scheme in the world, you know, in 30 years time, if you can't if you can't pay your bills today. Somehow, I don't think that the uh, minister is going to invite you to write the speech explaining that this is such a good idea. Well, it, it is a good idea. Of course, it's a good idea. It, no, 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 but it's a good, it's a good idea. <laughs> That's why Neil thinks it will never happen. No, no, but it's a good idea for people who are working in the, uh, in the NHS or teachers to be able to choose. Choice is always a good thing. Would you rather have a high, high wedge today? And a less generous pension in the future, still a jolly, still pretty generous. You know, you probably end up with half your average salary. And again, not knocking the public sector unions. Well, actually, I am knocking the public sector unions. The public sector unions, and they can correct me if they think I'm wrong, don't want that proposition to be put to members. 
because members might say, actually, that's quite a good idea. Yeah, well, that's why I believe it's not going to happen. I don't think the minister would like it either. Thank you, Mr. Ralph, for uh, your ideas. He's very ideas. discouraging. About, he basically <laughs> thinks anyone who has a good idea should shut up because it's never going to happen. No, I don't say you should <laughs> shut up for a minute. I just feel that, you know, the, the, courses, the, the forces of small-c conservatism should never be underestimated. Yeah. They are awesome. Which is why you know the inertia the is terrifying. The editor of the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> Quite. What do I know? That was a long time in finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton, and our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app, as that will help new listeners find us.